0: What did I just sing? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever sung a song or or we've been uh, maybe listening to a song uh, on the radio and you know, what what is that all about? Are you sitting in church and you're thinking, uh, what in the world do those lyrics even mean? And so um, a little while back, we sat down as a staff, and we decided we wanted to speak about some songs, some popular songs that we sing that maybe we don't know where they came from or what they mean. Have you ever wondered where some of our old hymns come from? Uh, you know, there's some words in some of those old hymns that you're like, we don't even use those words anymore. What does it mean? Well, if you've ever felt that way, then we encourage you to be with us over the next several weeks as we take a look at four different songs in our series that we're calling, What Did I Just Sing? Now, I know when I was a kid, there were some old hymns that I heard growing up in the church that I had absolutely no clue what they meant. We sang them all the time. I had absolutely no idea what they were all about. For instance... I had no idea what the song Bringing in the Sheaves was all about. Is anybody with me on that? We'd sing that song, bringing in the sheaves, bringing... I thought they were saying bringing in the cheese... And I couldn't understand why people in church were getting all excited about bringing cheese to church. You know, it wasn't all that big a deal to me. I don't even like cheese that much. And and so I didn't, didn't, I had to dive into it. And I didn't understand that it was basically about one day we're going to stand before the Lord and He's going to say, you know, come in and who did you bring with you and all that. And so you're bringing in the sheaves with you when you go. And so it's not about a dairy product at all. And that changes the way you sing the song when you know what is it's all about, right? I mean, it, it gives a little more meaning to it when you're thinking about people's souls rather than cheese, unless you're from Wisconsin or something. And then maybe it's a little more meaning for you there. There's another song we used to sing growing up, uh, Beulah Land. Remember that song? It was one of my favorite songs. It was my dad's favorite song. Had no idea what that song was about. I thought it was about this old lady that lived down the street from us. Beulah Archer was her name. And I'm thinking, why are we singing about Beulah's land you know I mean it's not all that much better than ours but we were singing about it. I didn't understand that it can it actually comes from the Bible Beulah land is not mentioned in Scripture but the idea is I had to uh, look this up one time and from Isaiah 62 4 and it was about when the Lord predicted a time when the Jews would serve the Lord faithfully uh kind of like a wife and husband serve one another. And in that day, Jerusalem would be called uh, Beulah, which means married. And some it could be a reference to the millennium, but we've kind of transposed that or transferred that into the thought of heaven. So when we think of Beulah or we think of Beulah land, we, we automatically think, of heaven. So this is the kind of stuff we're talking about during this series. The meaning of what we're singing. Because it's important that we know the meaning of the words that we're singing. It's important that we know the stories of God's word. A lot of these songs that we sing are just so rich in theology and so rich in doctrine. We need to know what they're about. Now there are some songs that are like secular songs It really doesn't matter all that much, right? We don't need to know what we're singing about all that much. We just kind of sing along, not necessarily life-changing. It could be inappropriate, and we don't even really know it. We're just kind of singing it. For instance, Every Breath You Take by The Police, great song. Every breath you take, every move you make. You know know the song, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. You you may have danced to that at your high school prom. You know that's a song about a stalker? That is not a love song at all. And and, I mean, you think about it. Every breath you take, every move you make... I'll be watching you. <laughs> you know, and and even Sting, even Sting said it's a really dark, creepy song. And so Not a love song at all. You need to know that. Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. That's an anti-war song about the Vietnam War, about a guy who went over and fought in the Vietnam War. He comes back to the United States. He finds out that there's very little opportunity for work. And so he's actually kind of ripping the United States for being involved in the Vietnam War. And that kind of changes the way you watch the Q-Mix fireworks, doesn't it? When they start playing that song, and born in the U.S., he's basically ripping us. So it's important that we know the meaning behind words. It's even more important when we gather in the church, right? We've actually chosen not to sing some songs here because well, we don't think they're really all that biblically accurate. We hear them on the radio and we say, oh, that's a great song. But then we're like, you know, it's just really, it doesn't really fit uh, what we think the Bible teaches. And so... um, a very popular song that we started doing a little while back is this song that we did just a moment ago, Graves into Gardens. And I realized as we were playing that, we've trained you guys pretty well, right? That after communion, you're done for a while. You don't have to sing. And I, and I saw you guys all just kind of sit there, and you didn't know whether to sing or not, right? Uh, next week, and then we say, sing. We're going to keep the same format. So when we get done with communion and we sing that next song before, we want you to sing that. We want you to continue worshiping with us uh, in, in that way. But anyway... We look at this title, Graves into Gardens. I got to admit, when I first heard this song, I'm like, what's, what's the big deal about this song? song? Everybody was doing Graves into Gardens, and I was kind of late to the party. I wasn't a huge fan of it for some reason. And the more I listened to it, the more I'm like, man, that is just a great song. But what are we singing? Graves into Gardens. Well, first of all, I want to break down the verse of this song. I searched the world, and it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together, and every desire is now satisfied here. Love. Hey. It's important to have that word hey in there. That's in the actual lyrics. Hey. We couldn't get the meaning across without that. But the first thing that we learn about this song is this Nothing in this world will satisfy. There's absolutely nothing out there that will satisfy you like Jesus can satisfy you. And the writers of this song are basically echoing the words of King Solomon in in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what he says. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. He goes on to say, history merely repeats itself itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. And what Solomon was saying, and what the writer of this song is echoing, I've searched the world, I've tried it all. And I've come to the conclusion that there's absolutely nothing in this world that even matters. Everything really in the grand scope of things is meaningless. Everything else you chase in this life that you think you need to have or you think you need to be compared to knowing Jesus is absolutely meaningless. And the king of Israel who wrote this is in absolute despair. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Here's the most powerful man in the world at that particular time. The king of Israel. Rich beyond what any of us can even imagine. He had whatever he wanted. He had whoever he wanted. Whenever he wanted them. And he was miserable. He had absolutely everything. He tried absolutely everything in his life was still a wreck it kind of reminds me of those people who win the lottery and they think that their lives are going to change and just be better well their lives change that's for sure but a majority of them their lives changed for for the worst because they're searching for their contentment they're searching for their happiness in in the wrong place you ever thought man if I could just have that then life would be great. Or if I could just get that job, or if I could just live in that house, or if I could just be with that person, and then I'd be content. Everything's going to be wonderful. Well, Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, in in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the writer of the song Graves in the Garden, the writer says, no, you won't. You won't be happy. You won't be content. Those things that you're searching for will not, cannot satisfy the, st- the song says man's empty praise and treasures that fade there are never enough how many of you know that it doesn't matter how many wonderful things that people say about you it's never enough man's empty praise isn't that kind of what we're receiving through social media i believe this is a huge problem in our society today i've said this before that that social media might be the ruination of our society Uh, Eventually, in several studies, teenagers and adults who spend uh, a significant amount of time on social media, either Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, you know them all, Twitter, all that, they were shown to have had an increase from before social media came into existence of about 13% of the population of teens and adults dealt with depression. On a regular basis, since social media, that number has risen to 66% of teenagers and adults are dealing with depression and anxiety and things like that more than people who don't spend a lot of time on social media. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with posting some pictures of yourself. I do that, you know, uh, post some things for others to see, where you've been, what you've eaten, totally fine. Pictures of your grandkids, I've been known to do that every once in a while. The problem is, some people just can't stop. I was reading an article this week from Nexus Recovery. They talk about how a person might post a picture or two but they took dozens of pictures just to get the right shot. And then after the picture is chosen of what they took, then they start adding these filter filters to them and try to embellish them so that people can either like them or comment on them and so people can feel some sort of validation or maybe some... Uh, Uh, you know, sense of worth because people are commenting and liking and what they're saying. And the article said this. Studies show that self-itis, you might want to write that down, self-itis, right, is a condition in which a person uses selfies to boost confidence, to fit in with peers, and achieve a sense of validation from others. This condition is characterized by a person's need to constantly take photos of himself or herself and post them Online. It goes on to say research suggests that the more time a person spends on social media, the more likely they are to struggle with feelings of inadequacy, lower self esteem, and general feelings of sadness. And they go on to say this the reason why is because people post pictures of themselves that is the best version of themselves, right? Unless you're Lauren, Lauren posts pictures of herself. She doesn't really care all that much. I don't know if you said, And it's kind of funny. We laugh at her and give her a hard time because she doesn't care, you know. Uh, and, and and the rest of us, most of the world, we post pictures in a way. We got to get the right angle, you know. And we got to get the right filter on it, so on and so forth, so that we can put the best version of ourselves out there. And then when someone else looks at that, they go, oh, well, he looks pretty good. Or she looks, you know, she looks really, really good, and so on and so forth. And then what we do is we look at that and we think, well, that person looks good and look at me, and I just don't really feel like I look all that good. And so we feel like we have to step it up a notch to look as good as what somebody else does on social media. Has anybody ever had these thoughts? I know we have, right? And so we compare ourselves to others. And then we think that the only way that we can find happiness and the only way that we can find contentment is to be like that. And so now I have to try to look like that. Or I have to have this. Or I have to go to this particular place. Did you know that between the years of 2019 and 2022, 259 people died taking selfies? Some of you are laughing. That's not funny. <laughs> they, they, they tried to get that. That wasn't meant for a joke. But some, of you, maybe I m- missed that part of it. I don't know. But but uh, they, they they tried to get the right angle, or they tried to get that shot. You know, and people have fallen from cliffs. People have been electrocuted. People have been in automobile accidents. People have died from self-inflicted gunshot wounds, from fires and explosions. And this was all because they were seeking some type of validation from people, some type of contentment from people on social media. And that's not counting the people who starve themselves because they think they have to be a certain weight, They have to look a certain way because society has said, you're not beautiful unless you do. And it doesn't mention the number of people that have had complications. The article doesn't even mention this. I thought of this all by myself. I was proud of myself. I wonder about all the people that have complications from plastic surgeries, or taking some type of medication that they, you know, that they have to lose weight. Listen, church, the wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus, the the wisest non God person who ever lived was Solomon and the first couple chapters of this book he said I've tried it all I've tried wisdom I've tried knowledge I've tried pleasure it didn't work I tried to find contentment in my job in the kinds of houses I lived in and it didn't work he mentions companionship he mentions relationships he mentions political power and he says it all falls short There is a God-given longing in each and every person who has ever lived. God has placed that in every human being and nothing else in this world will ever satisfy. And that's what this song is talking about in the verse. Right? And so because of that, just be you. That's the second thing in our our notes today. Just Just be you. We feel like We have to put on this front, again, like I've said, we have to look a certain way. And and God loves you for who you are, not what you can do. Verse 2 says, I'm not afraid to show you my weakness. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? How many of you can say that? I can't always. I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. But here's what he says, and I love this. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. God sees every single one of our flaws. He sees every single one of our failures. We often work so hard to try to impress people. And as I said, it often leads to putting up this false front, wearing masks around, especially in church. And God is saying, My child, listen to me. I see everything. I see the good. I see the bad. All your imperfections. All your lies. And I still love you. It's not what you do that makes me love you. It's who you are. I read that years ago in England, back when they still used the balance scales, you've seen those balance scales, are still used as a sign for a court of law, I know. But years ago in England, when they still used those types of scales, that a baker sued a farmer over a pound of butter that he was buying. All right, And so he said that the fir- when he first started buying butter from the farmer, it was a full pound. But gradually, the farmer started selling him less and less. Until now, he's only giving him about three quarters of a pound of the butter, but he's still charging him for the full pound. And so he sued him. Uh, in a court of law. The farmer in his defense said to the judge. Sir all I have is this balanced scale to measure things with. So that's what I measure the butter on. And what I do is when when the baker brings me the bread. I put the pound of bread that he made for me on one side of the scales. And I put my pound of butter uh, on the other until it even evens out. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we try to do to balance out our credibility or our worth? You know, we're like, okay, we're here. We're on this scale. And as long as I can be as good as this person or look like this person, then everything's in balance and everything is is good. Or here's what we do more often. We we tend to judge ourselves or look at ourselves in a way that says something along these lines. Well, I'm not as bad as that lady, so I'm doing pretty well, right, on the grand scale that God uses. My life isn't near as messed up as his. And so I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. I'm not as bad as him. But that's not that's not how it's worked. The standard is Jesus. And so when we look at our lives, we don't we don't compare ourselves. We don't place ourselves on the scales of other messed up people like we are or worse than us. It's Jesus that we have to put ourselves up to. And, and to stay with this illustration, I kind of picture in God's courtroom. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be this big courtroom. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people have depicted it this way. I don't know what it's going to be like, honestly. But, but when we stand before the Lord, I kind of picture it could be something like this. That Maybe there's scales there where our sins are placed on one side of the scales. And a lot of people think that, man, if I, if my good works weigh as much as my sins, then that's going to balance things out. But that's not how it works at all. What happens, I think, is here's our sins, but God places His grace on the other side. And it outweighs every sin that we've ever committed. Contrary to popular belief God does not put our good works on the scales against our bad works he puts his grace on the other side and he doesn't put another person on the scale so stop trying to live up to what somebody else is doing because that's the other person is not going to be accountable for you when you stand before the Lord it's you Ephesians 2 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. Elsewhere in scripture, God calls our works, he calls our righteousness, the things that we try to do to earn favor with him, he calls them filthy rags. Again, we cannot impress God enough to love us more than He already does. So we need to stop trying to fool Him, stop trying to fool everybody else, and just be you. Don't be afraid to show your weaknesses. Don't be afraid to let people know you've got some mistakes. Let the people that you love the most Know about what you're struggling with and let them help you through it. That's what the church is all about. That's what family's all about. You might be thinking, well, Ron, you don't understand. I'm pretty messed up. i got a lot of things going on in my life that you don't know about. I've got a lot of things going on that my family doesn't know about. I've got a lot of things going on in my life that I'm not sure God can even forgive me of. If you don't get anything else out of today's service, understand that God knows about everything that you do, everything that you've done, He still loves you. Now, He doesn't want you to keep doing whatever it is you're struggling with, right? Every time in Scripture that He forgave someone of sin, He told them, go and leave your life of sin, you know, stop it. But I forgive you. I love you. In fact, he loves you so much he was willing to send his son to the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And when God looks at us, he doesn't doesn't see our failures. He sees Jesus. He sees perfection. Perfection. It's kind of like this. He sees us like we want everybody else to see us on social media. <laughs> he sees us as perfect. And I, and I kind of, you know, maybe this is a little bit cheesy, but it's kind of like God uses a Jesus filter on all of our Instagram posts, right? It's like, so, so he puts this filter on us, and that filter is the blood of Jesus. And he sees us as, as perfect. And the writer of this song says, because of that, there's nothing better than you, God. Nothing better than you. Lord, there's nothing better than you. And you might be thinking, I'm not sure God can forgive me of my past. Well, there's a final thing you need to understand today if you're taking notes. God specializes in the impossible. Again, you're sitting out there and you're thinking, you have no idea what I've done. God specializes in the impossible. God shows up and does his thing when when we least expect it, when we think there's absolutely no way out. As the writer of the song says, he turns mourning to dancing. Psalm 30, 11, and 12, that's what the writer is referencing. You've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I may sing praises to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. And where this comes from, we've got King David, right? He's living in this time of desperation, and he is feeling bad over the sin that he had committed, and he asked the Lord to forgive him. And you know what? God did. He said, Yeah, but that was David. Do you know what David? You know what he was talking about? You know what he was praying about? He had just had an affair with Bathsheba, and then he had Bathsheba's husband Uriah sent out to battle to be killed. So not only did he have the affair, he committed murder, and then he tried to cover it up. And God saw it all. And he still forgave him. I'm going to guess you've not done anything quite like that. So I don't know how bad you think it is that you are, or how bad the thing is that you have done. God can forgive you of it. And, and then... He gives beauty for ashes. He, he turns mourning to dancing, right? So he takes our, our, our sad situation of tears and sorrow and he can turn it into a time of rejoicing and then he can turn that ugly thing into something absolutely beautiful. Psalm 61 3 To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that That the Lord has planted for his own glory. This is an incredible picture of what God can do with your circumstance. That you don't think he can even forgive you of. Let alone take it and use it for something absolutely beautiful. This passage of scripture that the song references is talking about the mourning process that the Jews would go through. And what they would do when they were uh, mourning uh, is, is they would put on sackcloth. You know what sackcloth is? Sackcloth is basically this itchy, gunny sack, right? And so they felt like, I guess, they weren't even worthy to wear clothes that were comfortable or fit. And so they put on this itchy, scratchy, nasty, gunny sack, sackcloth, and then they would cover themselves in ashes and they would mourn. And in Isaiah... He says, God can take that ugly mourning period and replace it with beauty. And when he writes this, there's really not a good English translation for the word. But the idea of it is this, the way I understand it, is that God will replace the ashes of mourning on your head with a beautiful headdress or a beautiful crown or a beautiful tiara. Right? He takes that nasty, ashy, dirty looking gray stuff that you put on your head and he replaces it with something beautiful to wear on your head. Like I said a a headdress, a, a crown a cubs hat. That would be the most beautiful thing that probably could, could be. Whatever it is that you think is beautiful. I don't know. All right? And he makes that He can take that and make it into something beautiful through Jesus. He turns your shame into glory. He wants to use your story, good or bad, to bring him glory. As someone else once put it, only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into a victory. He can open up the Red Sea. For the children of Israel to walk through to the other side. Or as the writer of our song says, he turns seas into highways. And he can cause dead bones to come alive and become an army, as Ezekiel 37 tells us. And then God, God took the grave of his son. And turned it into the most beautiful thing through his resurrection. And that's new life. That's growth. And I don't know what grave you might feel like you're in right now. There might be some of you feel like, listen, I'm I'm in the depths of despair. I'm in a terrible grave. He can use this opportunity. He can grow you in this opportunity. He can turn your grave, whatever the situation is, into a beautiful garden of growth. If you let Him. As the worship team comes and as we close this morning, I just want to encourage you to let Him have His way with your life. Let Him turn your grave into a garden. He's the only one who can. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and and if you're here this morning and, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never made that decision to confess Him as the Christ and to repent of your sins and be baptized into Him for the washing away of your sins, we encourage you to think about that this morning. Maybe you're just dealing with some stuff that you've never really had that honest conversation with God where you've said, God, I'm sorry. I repent of the sin that's in my life. Take this, God, and use it however you want. You see it all. And I know you still love me. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're here, you want to become a part of our church family. Maybe you're here and you just want to be prayed with this morning. A couple of our elders are ready to to pray with you here this morning. Um, Whatever it is, we encourage you to come. Let's pray together.